This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code POETRY at the checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 85, and we're recording on Thursday, December 18th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're some of the editors of BookRiot.com, coming to you from BookRiot.com. Uh, good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Here we are. I, we're, yeah. we're, 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 swir- we're going swirling down the toilet of 2014 now. We're, we you are. Know, the, final, the final spins here. I'm just about to be listening to Long December on repeat for the next, <laughs> like, you know, until the end of the year. <laughs> I'm uh, just ready. We're gonna, next week, we're going to do a year in review show. So in anticipation of there not being a whole lot of book news next week, though I didn't think there'd be much this week, and yet here we are. Um, we're going to kind of go through some of the big stories we talked about on this show this year, and I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, that'll be if fun. there was a story you remember, you, listener, and you, Rebecca, but you already know this, um, that we talked about or from the book world that you don't remember we talked about that happened in 2014 that you'd like to see us talk about or recap uh, or reflect on next week, shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. We'd love to hear if there's anything that really sticks out to you. Um, speaking of the best of 2014. Oh, I like that. I just put on a T for you. <laughs> In our new Book Riot store, which you can find at storebookriot.com, we have a box of the best of 2014. It's 100 bucks. It's worth more than that. And it has four of our favorite books of the year at Book Riot, um, some of which were great and we thought kind of sleepers that weren't really uh, talked about very much. Some of them are, are titles that you've heard a lot about and have re- will recognize. Um, there's a nice balance there. We thought really carefully about what those four books were going to be that represented not just the best of the year, but also that sort of summed up what we thought 2014 was about in books. And it also includes four awesome bookish items from our partners at Out of Print Clothing. Um, good responses to it so far. We only made a couple hundred of these and we only have like a few dozen left. Uh, so check out store.bookriot.com for the best of 2014 box. They'll be available until they sell out. So jump on that and uh, let us know if you do it, how you like it. We're probably going to do some of these again, you know, like best stuff for summer, best stuff for moms, dads, and grads. <clears throat> yeah, if you're, like if you're into it, let us know. All right. So we'll do one bit of follow-up before for sponsor here. Our boy, James Patterson. Who, Is he our boy now? Well, I was thinking about this. Uh, and I, I linked to this story in Critical Linking this morning on, on the site, and I said, you know, I, I don't agree with his narrative about books are dying and, like, that weird YouTube video he made with, like, people burning books, you know? Oh, like, yeah, that Amanda and I talked about yeah. a few weeks ago. Oh, Yeah, you guys talked about that. That's right. I was, so um, weird. I, I don't agree with his narrative, but I have to admire his advocacy and passion and putting his back into, you know, supporting what he believes. You know, this, this million-dollar, I guess – fund he put together for independent bookstores. It's not a terrible idea. I'm not sure it's what I would spend a million dollars on if I were trying to support book culture in America, but I don't think it's a waste of money. Um, but he completed his his um, his donation, his promised donation, uh, with the remaining $437,000 going to 81 independent bookstores. So if I do the math real quick, that's what, about five, six grand mm-hmm. a piece? Um, and he did it. So, you know, that's that's what he was looking at. So in total, it's one million eight, uh, one million 
$8,300 to 187 bookstores across the U.S., no strings attached. Um, people did need to submit a proposal, but my understanding is I don't think he's going to go back and, like, check, did you actually do what you said you were going to do? Um, so interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't think there was any doubt that he would come through and follow no, up. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to imply this. that. Oh, no, you didn't. I'm just... I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, sure, sure, <laughs> About sure. How did Jeff? It's early. Um, I think it's cool. I'm wholeheartedly with you on. I don't love the way that James Patterson talks about book culture or the the narrative that he sets up of books are dying and this is why I'm doing this thing. And I think that makes me a little iffy on the intentions. Like, mm. do we need a message that books are dying in order to make? a program like this seem important and appealing? I don't think so. Like, why not just message it as books have never been more important and here's where I'm putting, mm -hmm. you know, putting my money where my mouth is. But he's certainly putting a lot of money where his mouth is. And um, my my friend Josh Christie works for Sherman's Bookstores in, um, in Portland, Maine, and one of their locations received one of these mm. grants. And Josh was talking about it, um, I think, on Facebook the other day, that they're going to be able to do some structural work on um, the Bar Harbor. I think it's the Bar Harbor store, which is one of the oldest bookstores uh, and you know, probably need some work that they haven't been able to do otherwise. So it's cool that bookstores are going to have this kind of, you know, 178 bookstores. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. I think this is very cool. I would have just written the PR plan for it differently, yeah. I think. Um, but I think he doesn't care about the PR this. too much. You know, and that's one thing I kind of like about him. Like, it's not mm. sort of elegantly crafted in, in business speak for that sort of thing. All right, let's do our first sponsor. Squarespace is back. Squarespace Building a website used to be a huge pain. Actually, it still is in a lot of cases. You had to set it up all by yourself. You'd have to troubleshoot it. You'd have to like learn what you're doing to even know what could be wrong. In some cases, you didn't even know what was wrong, so you just lived with something crappy for a while. If you ever to go back and edit it, you had to go back and you know change links or the color of the background, and sometimes the width of your columns would get messed up, which would change which font you wanted and the size. The whole thing was very difficult to do. That's what Squarespace is all about. Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without making it, you know, something you, get, you need to white knuckle and be really anxious about. It can be a lot of fun. So if you're new to Squarespace, you should check it out. And if you've been listening to a long time, you've listened to us, we've had Squarespace spots before. If you listen to other podcasts, there's a lot of Squarespace spots there. They love podcasts because they know that people who listen to podcasts are interested in these sorts of things. So Squarespace 7, there's a couple of things that I don't think we've talked about with Squarespace before. One that's really cool recently is that some, you know, we've talked for, we've had examples of people that use Squarespace. We ask people to write and if they use it where they're using a blog or a store or something else like that or a portfolio. One thing that's new in Squarespace 7 is it's called cover pages. So it's a specialized kind of website that just has one's a big splash page and then a gallery. So if you just need a presence for something, not a lot of functionality, but you want to give someone a sense of who you are, contact information, location information, you know, a, an event space or a, a restaurant would be a particularly good one where, you know, you, what do you need for a restaurant? A menu and some pictures and when you're open, right? I mean, what yep. else do you really need? The, the horrible days 
I hope, are coming to the end of the Flash restaurant webpage. Oh, and the download menu with PDF. Yeah, you have to download as a PDF, and it's also playing music randomly for some reason. Um, All that makes me do is hate the restaurant. So cover page is one really nice thing that if you just need something beautiful and easy for people to access that looks great on all devices, that's one nice thing. The other nice thing they've done recently is they've partnered with Getty Images, which is one of the sort of behemoths of image sourcing, like the New York Times, Time Magazine use Getty Images for getting images for news stories. Now they've built they've built into Squarespace 7, a partnership with Getty Images, where you can get four, 40, excuse me, 40 million high quality photos for your site for $10 an image. That so is good. Built right in there. If you need something for, you know, your cover page, um, if you're doing a lot of blogging and wanting to use images like that, probably not a great deal because $10 if you're doing a couple posts a day or something like that's going to add up. But if you're looking for something else where it's going to be more of a static, permanent kind of content that you need there, that's a heck of a deal to basically have a picture from a professional photographer living on your site, have all the licensing taken care of by Squarespace and Getty. So there's a really nice integration. All these things are Squarespace trying to make it as easy as possible for you to make a website that represents what you are and what you do in the best possible way. So that, that's Squarespace for $8 a month. You get a free domain if you buy for a year. Um, a 24-7 live chat support. Go through email as well. Um, and that's squarespace.com. So if you go, you don't have to have a credit card to do this trial, but go to squarespace.com, use offer code POETRY, and you get 10% off your first purchase. That shows support for the podcast here because that's a promo code. Also let Squarespace know you came from us and it's working and to keep buying ads from us. So that's Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere, offer code POETRY. All right, let's do it. What's our first story? Our first story, well, we've talked a ton over the last, since the podcast has existed, but especially over the last year about diversity in fiction and diversity in publishing. And Melinda Lowe, who is a young adult writer, runs a great blog called Diversity in YA that focuses, surprise, specifically on diversity in young adult fiction. And she crunched some end of year numbers about representation of LGBT characters in young adult fiction this year or young adult books, period, not just fiction. Um, so we have the link to this in the show notes. You can check out all of uh, of her great, delicious stats. But she is looking at um, gender representation. Mm. So in uh, in young adult books that had primary characters who were gay or in which one of the primary storylines deals with a character who's gay, um, 35% are about um, cis female characters and 40% were about male uh, characters. So it's not a, not a huge difference there about mm-hmm. who the stories are focusing on. 12% had a plot or issue related to a male character. Um, let's see this first pie chart. 5% had a gender destabilizing main character. So someone that doesn't fall into the easily into the Mm -hmm. binary of um, male or female identity looks like about 5% had an intersex main character and about 5% had multiple characters that had of multiple uh, genders and gender identities. It goes on to look at um, genre. I don't think this is too surprising. 51% of the young adult books um, that dealt with LGBT issues were con- had contemporary settings, and then 36% of them had science fiction and fantasy settings, followed by 9% nonfiction, and then 2% each of historical and cross-genre. Um, certainly, this is a contemporary issue. We're talking about it a lot in American culture and politics right now, coming to new understandings. Um, the internet has been wonderful for, for this. Um, so, 
not surprised to see it pop up more in contemporary fiction. Um, and science fiction and fantasy have kind of always been the mm -hmm. place for exploring questions about sexuality and about gender um, and really for exploring identities that don't conform or uh, that are questioned in in questioned or problematic to people in contemporary society you can pull those same kinds of questions into a different world to examine them from a different light and so it's interesting and um, and and cool to see that happen in science fiction and fantasy I thought the most interesting part of um, Melinda Lowe's breakdown is the discussion about intersectionality at the end of the post where she's talking about it's not just about having a character who's gay, but about how um, often in American society and in American fiction as a reflection um, the discussions about being gay and the experiences of being gay are specifically seen as largely white. Mm. And so she also looks at books she goes specifically look, looking for books that aren't just about the gay experience, but about what is it like if you're gay and black? What is it like if you are transgender and Asian? Um, that intersection of multiple minority identities and how those are dealt with and represented in books. Um, and it looks like they're things are on the uptick. There's a great chart that shows um, LGBT YA books published by major publishers by year from 2003 um, to the present. And there's a big spike in 2007, which was like the heyday of young adult fiction right before all of the economy crashing mm, right, stuff in 2008, happened. Sure. And so then the numbers start falling and they fall in 2008 and 2009 and they dip to it looks like the lowest on the chart in 2010. But they've been sort of steadily ticking upward. And then there's a big, um, a big jump here in 2014. And she says uh, in the analysis that she hopes that that means that we've, we're done bottoming out at the end of the sort of economic decline in demand for young adult books that was happening as just the economy was declining. Mm -hmm. And that um, she hopes to see continued a continued increase here. There's so many good, juicy statistics. Yeah. In 2014, mainstream publishers published 47 LGBTYA books. Mm -hmm. That's a 59 59% increase from 2013. I don't, I don't know if she said here um, if what the total number of YA titles were for the ah. year. Because the graph you, you mentioned at the end mm -hmm. is an interesting one, but it's also subject to the law of very small numbers. Right, right. right. Because in, it goes 2013 to 2014, and in 2013 it looks like there were about 12 LGBT mm -hmm. YA titles. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot when you're dealing with a sample size that small, like five extra titles can look statistically significant when maybe it really isn't right, that's true. over time. So I think it's still worth looking at, but it's, I think it's very difficult. It's kind of like when Book Riot was small or like maybe more, maybe the better examples like when you and I were first writing our own blogs and we had kind of relatively small traffic days. Well, if you had 20 extra people come for some right. random reason, right. it looked like a huge <laughs> spike. Um, when, so that that's just the only thing I would say here is the percentage of now are there fewer YA books being published? I don't think so. That's not my personal sense of it. I don't know the answer to that because if there are the same or more YA books being published, that means the actual percentage of YA books in total that are LGBT might actually be decreasing. Mm -hmm. But again, I'd need to know the top level when, number for that. I think the only other 
sort of caveat or even just piece of context here is that she's only looking at mainstream publishers, yes. so major commercial publishers and smaller publishers. She's not looking at self-published. But even if you don't consider the vast ocean of new self-published books in all genres every year, there are still uh, thousands of new young adult titles from uh, hundreds main, at least, right? From I mainstream. Mean, yeah. So forty-seven total it's books not that, that are primarily is really not that many, and it's certainly not representative of uh, the percent of the U.S. population Is that, about that 10%? identifies. That's the number I have in my head for sort of what the percentage of the American population that identifies as LGBT. I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, it's interesting. We've had a conversation of Amanda wrote a really great post mm-hmm. last week. It's just last week. It feels like it was longer ago than that um, about publishing's diversity problem, especially when it comes to race, uh, particularly when it comes to race. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically saying that the percentage of books we see by and about people of color does not even come close to the number of people that live in America that are uh, identified as being of color. Now, again, all the caveats aside there, this is America, people identify census numbers, all of those are fuzzy. And some people pushed back, and I think reasonably so, because, you know, it, it's a difficult question. It's like, is, the, is a, basically a quota of a percentage really sort of a sign of health and representation? And the answer is probably not, um, but also it's kind of what we have as a, as a, as a measuring stick. So I, I don't know that, you know, what percentage we'd be quote unquote happy with. Uh, you know, I think that's kind of a straw man argument. I think it's a quick way of looking at a data set and seeing how it looks. That's why I'm kind of like, if it's 1% of the, the L, L, uh, YA titles of LGBT, then, then they're like a factor of 10 underrepresented. So that, that's something I'm kind of looking at there. How do these stats look compared to sort of the demographic information we know about the U.S.? Right. I think that's the best and most useful way to think about it is we, if we know 33% of Americans are not white, mm-hmm. but we are seeing, you know, between like 3 and 10% of the books that people talk about and that reviewers feature um, regularly being books that are buying about people of color, that's a huge gap. Mm-hmm. And when you can see that kind of huge discrepancy between what you know the population looks like and what the art that we're putting out represents about our population, that's I, we want to focus on closing that gap. Mm-hmm. But also um, a commenter, I think it was on Amanda's uh, Amanda's post said, and I thought it was a really nice way to think about it, of this is a thing where you work towards it knowing that there's never going to be a moment where you're like, oh, we have arrived right. and yes. we have fixed this thing. And also that this these imbalances in diversity in publishing um, and representations of people of color, but also people who are um, minorities in their sexual identity and their gender identity, have these imbalances have existed for so long that like, if next year or 10 years or 20 years from now, whenever, like if we got to a point where what more than 33% mm-hmm. of the books put out in a year were buyer about people of color, I'm not going to throw my hands up and be like, well, now we have too many. Yeah, books. we overshot the mark. We had to dial it down. <laughs> right. Well, that number of the people of people in the U.S. who um, are, are, are either identified or identify themselves is not why that's only growing. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's not going to be too long. I think in the next 25 or 30 years, um, will there be more non-white people in the United States than there are white people? So uh, that that relates to this second, this other point I've sort of been thinking about recently, which I don't haven't really seen talked about in other publications and in, in addition to ours that think about diversity in publishing and books necessarily that, 
and diversity of all kinds, disabilities and sexual identities mm-hmm. and uh, immigration statuses, all, all sorts of things we think about here. Um, mostly we come at it from, and this is not a critique, it's just an observation from sort of a social justice kind of angle, like it's more fair, you know, that all things I believe. But I think there's also an economic angle you could take too. If you want to sell books to the most people, well, then maybe the book should represent who those people are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it seems to me the LGBT community looks like it might be wildly underserved. I know for sure that the um, African-American community is widely, un- wildly underserved by mainstream publishing. And if, you know, uh, it, I don't know that it's a mistake that um, uh, non-white Hispanic, excuse me, uh, Hispanic people in the U.S. don't buy and read as many books as white people do. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of them is there are not as many that speak to and for them. And so there's an economic case to be made for increasing the diversity of your line is because the people buying books out there are diverse themselves. Like it's not an abstract sort of, you know, there's a, this group of people, we don't know who they are and we never see them. Like they're real people out there. And most people like books, um, I think. And well, I, th- there's I something think- to be done there. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things that I saw happen online back in the spring when We Need Diverse Books popped up, mm. um, was people saying, please recommend me more of these titles. Yes. Please talk to me about you know books about this kind of minority or, or about this particular experience. And some of these were people, white people like you and me, that want to read about diverse experiences. But a lot of them were people of color asking other people of color, what are like? What have you found yes. that is about this experience? What have you found that's about not being white in America? Or what have you found that's about being gay? And that dis- th- that market exists. Lots of readers want to read books that are about those experiences, and it does make good economic sense. You know, I think I don't think I know. I wish that publishers would just do this because it's it, it's the right, fair, good thing. Mm to do. Um, but if, if you can't get yourself on board to do it for that reason, then do it because the market exists. Yeah. I mean, um, it's one of the remarkable things about bias, um, structural or personal or otherwise, is that often it causes you to act against your own economic interest, right? I mean, right. that's, it's so powerful that you don't even see, um, what you can't see because of bias, uh, there. So, um, thanks. Melinda, that's what her name yeah, is. Yeah. Melinda, Melinda Lowe. Lowe. So you can go to the diversityny.com is her site and we'll link to this particular study in the show notes. If you want to dive in and take a look at more of those things there. All right. Uh, let's see. What do we want to do next? Um, best of YA lists. Yeah. Let's, let's do that. No- more take, take me through that. I haven't looked at this story yet. Okay. Uh, Kelly Jensen, who's one of our associate editors at book riot also runs a great blog called stacked. That's um, specifically about young adult books. And for the last several years, she has looked at the books that appear on best of YA lists at the end of the year from uh, 2011 onward. So th- there are tons of stats here, but we can see the gender breakdown of male and female authors that appear on best of lists in YA. Um, in 2011, it was 58% books by women. In 2012, it was 80% um, of the authors on the best of lists were women. And you can see the references to which lists she's looking at um, within this post, which will be in the show notes. And then uh, in 2013, it was 75% of the books, the young adult books that uh, appeared on best of lists were written 
by women in 2014, the breakdown is roughly 70% female authors and 30% male authors. Um, then she looks at the genders of the main characters of these books, um, debut authors that appear on best of list versus established uh, seasoned authors, the genres of young adult novels that appear on best of list. There's just a ton here. It's it's interesting because there's a lot of hand-wringing about the place of um, of boy books and um, of of women leading YA, mm-hmm. and I think about maybe six months ago or so, we were looking at numbers about how many of the um, best selling books in young adult are written by female authors, but how they receive lower advances. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember um, that story. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting here to see that um, according to Kelly's numbers female authors are dominating young adult, um, but the main characters' gender breakdown is pretty close. It's um, 53% female main characters, 46% male main characters. So um, it's not just an absence of books for boys, um, as she talks about. And Kelly wrote about that on Book Riot as well this week, that um, if you look at the snapshot, I think of Amazon's best-selling books of the year, um, the YA books primarily have covers that are designed to appeal to boy readers that have boys on the covers that don't, you know, fit sort of the schema of what we think about as girl books. And she's arguing against the the common refrain of, but there are no books for boys. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of great stuff here. Um, She went really deep into the numbers. Yeah. I, I don't know that any particular thing jumps out to me about this. Um, and some of it jives with what my sense is, you know, that realistic contemporary in terms of the aggregate numbers, realistic contemporary mm-hmm. by women is sort of the most populated, uh, I guess, category for YA. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more historical than I would have thought. 22% mm-hmm. of the best of lists are 22% historical YA, which is not a genre I know much about at all, I have to say. Um, so anyway, fantasy dominates the genre for best of. Um, in 2011, it was. So this, she does a little comparison for there. But basically, it's rest- in, in order from most populated to least, it's realistic, historical, fantasy, science fiction, paranormal, and then short stories. Which is funny, we were just talking about YA short stories. It's mm-hmm. something neither of us know much about <laughs> uh, offline uh, the other day. So again, you can find the link uh, to the show notes uh, there. So... That's a good good job, Kelly. Yeah, good job, Kelly. And man, I love this time of year when just the numbers yeah, start, we start coming looking at the out year about interview. everything. This, this, this uh, really gets gets us in a place we like to be. While we're talking about YA, I'll go to our next sponsor, um, X, a novel by Ilyasa Shabazz and Kikla Magoon is back this week. Um, this is co-written by Malcolm X's daughter, and it's a, a novel that follows his formative years um, before he became the man that we know as uh, Malcolm X. So it's about a, a boy named Malcolm Little, uh, whose parents have always told him that he can achieve anything. Uh, but from what he can tell, that is not true. Um, his father is murdered, his mother has been taken away, and his dreams of a lawyer have got, of becoming a lawyer have gotten him la- laughed out of school. Uh, so he figures there's no point in trying. And he's lured by the nightlife of Boston and New York and escapes into a world of fancy suits, jazz, girls, and reefer. Uh, but Malcolm's efforts to leave the past behind lead him into increasingly dangerous territory. 
And that it starts as a small time hustling gig, but quickly spins out of control. Deep down, though, he knows that this feeling that he has that this is freedom is only an illusion and that he can't run forever. Uh, so X follows Malcolm from his childhood to his imprisonment for theft at the age of 20, which is when he found the faith that would lead him to forge a new path and command the voice that still resonates today. Um, this sounds so interesting. Uh, and again, it's called X, a novel. It's out from Candlewick. It's got a blurb from Chris Rock and a blurb from Muhammad Ali, uh, which two, mm. you know, big, important, but also pretty different voices to see blurbing. And super Just, smart. I mean, Chris Rock, right. uh, I mean, for a long time, have both been super keen observers mm -hmm. of uh, America itself. Um, good blurbs for them. Right. So if you are, you know, look, <clears throat> excuse me, if you are looking for a young adult read, this is um, middle grade young adult um, about an important figure in American culture, um, about the civil rights movement, about who Malcolm X was, or you want to add some diversity to your reading life, whatever. You have. You can have many reasons. I can think of a dozen reasons that you might be interested in this book. Uh, it's called X, a novel, and you can buy it wherever books are sold. All right. So we're, again, we're going to go, we're going stat heavy a little bit today. Um, deal with it. Uh, so the American Association of Publishers published uh, last week their sort of three-quarter post mark for 2014 for sales for the industry. And uh, interesting news. So the whole book publishing industry was up is up 4.9% through uh, September. But Jeff, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. And that and that does that's not usually what we talk about. The total trade that includes educational and business and the whole, you know, everything that mm -hmm. goes in. Usually what we're talking about on the show here is trade publishing. Right. That's the most of the things you go into Barnes and Noble and we talk about on the show are trade. And that itself was up two point eight percent. So that's over 2013. So in millions of dollars, I'm always so bad at this. So January to sep January through September 30th, 2014, total trade sales of $5 billion. Am I looking at that right? I think so. $5 billion. I'm terrible yeah. at this convert thousands Th into in millions. millions. It's 5,000 million. <laughs> I think it's 5 billion. Um, and then, so that's up 2.8%. And they break it down a little bit more from there in terms of category. Adult fiction, nonfiction down 3.3%. Um, let's talk about each of these as we, okay. after we get through them. Children's young adult up 22.4%, up $300 million, if I'm reading that right, which I think I am. And then religious presses are up 2.1%. By format, uh, total trade ebooks up 5.6%. Total trade hardback down 0.9%. And total trade paperback, which I thought was interesting, is plus 4.1%. Uh, which, which of those things is most interesting to you? The 22.4% increase huge, in children's right? and young adults? Yeah. Um, even for as much, 22%, uh, so from about a billion dollars to $1.3 billion. Though, interesting, for as much hand-wringing as there is about young adult is eating the world, it's still just getting to be over a third of what adult fiction and nonfiction does. So it's, it's still growing pretty fast. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is the top line 2.8% number is we haven't mm -hmm. had it, correct me if I'm missing something. We haven't had like a huge hit this year. Yeah, this is, we're still a few years post 50 Shades of Grey. And Hunger Games. And, and the Hunger Games. Uh, Divergent and all that right. stuff. I mean, there's Which, some tale to the movies for that stuff, but... Yeah, I'm curious about 
someone who knows more than we do about young adult and children's, uh, what they would peg this growth on mm. in the young adult and which titles have yeah. been driving that. And I think that's a, an interesting question and I'd be fascinated by what the answers are. So if you have thoughts about that, if you know things about young adult and children's publishing about the titles that are behind this growth, please let us know. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. Yeah. You know, there's a new Jonathan Franzen novel coming out in the fall of 2015. And I saw someone tweet that for as much eye rolling as happens, um, around a new Jonathan Franzen novel, that at least means that we can look forward to a guaranteed spike in book sales mm. in September or October next year, um, whenever that book comes out, because he's one of those authors that guarantees that for publishing um, in, in the same way probably that Donna Tartt does, but he has, I would say, more just public visibility. So maybe we'll see this number go up, but we have not had a big adult fiction phenomenon. No, no Gone Girl. In a couple years, right? No Gone Girl. Was it Gone Girl 2013, 2012 even? I think Gone Girl and Fifty Shades of Grey were the same year. Uh, It's been a few. Hmm. It's been a few years. Um, Yeah, so that that one's interesting. Uh, The other one is the resilience of trade paperback. Um, Mine and a lot of other people's working thesis about eBooks has been one place that would get hit hardest by ebooks is mass market and trade paperbacks. Um, and at least according to this, that hasn't really been the case this year. Total trade hardback, you can really pin, you know, there's not too many trade hardbacks that aren't adult fiction or nonfiction. Right. Um, so even I, that number that adult fiction, nonfiction is down 3.3%, whereas the hardback market is only down 0.9%. There's something I'm missing there. Maybe it's business books are doing better or something. I, I guess that, no, that's adult nonfiction. I don't know. I guess maybe a, there's not that many YA hardbacks, are there? I didn't think there were, but I don't pay attention to the actual physical format of YA that much. Yeah, there's a good number of YA okay. hardbacks. So maybe hardbacks have been buttressed to when some degree by YA. hardback prices have been going up, at least mm-hmm. in adult fiction. This is a thing that I've noticed that books that would have come out in hardcover a few years ago at, at $24.99, I've read it as publishers scrambling to make more money off of fewer hardback sales yes. or, or to try to make up for the margins. Hardback books are where publishers make the most margin and ebooks, they make not so much margin um, because ebook prices are typically lower. lower. Um, so hardcovers are like routinely twenty six ninety nine and twenty seven ninety nine. Mm-hmm. The tart now, was where, like thirty bucks. I think right, it's a big like book. A, yeah, thirty dollars for a new hardcover book. Like I understand it was seven hundred pages, but really, I can understand uh, the move though because if you're if you're the kind of person who's going to buy hardback anyway, you're probably a little less price sensitive than other people because you're buying the premium product, right? So there's probably right. a little bit more. Uh, elasticity in the pricing mm-hmm. there. I hope I've used that business term correctly. I'm, 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 it's, it's a it's a dicey situation where I try to use a real business <laughs> term uh, for sure. <laughs> ebooks only up five point six percent, only five point six percent year over year, mm-hmm. barely outpacing the cat the 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 entire industry. You know uh, that's I think that's super interesting. Yeah, I 
Uh, well, this is a personal complaint of, of mine that we've talked about on the show, but I do think it's problematic that most mainstream publishers are pricing their ebooks where they are pricing them. Um, well, is, is it though, if it's keeping the paperback sales up? I mean, well, maybe it's working. I don't know. That's true. I guess it's only problematic if <laughs> you, you care about digital adoption. <laughs> or your know, personal preference and <laughs> right. price, right? Yeah, no, that's fair. Right. Um, so uh, for me, it's problematic. For the industry, it's interesting uh, that digital adoption has sort of plateaued. And I don't think we have stats in this show about no. that. But I know you and I were looking at it on Twitter. Someone else, Jane from Dear Author, was talking about it on Twitter, I believe, recently about digital adoption sort of cutting off around 30% and it's not really going somewhere else. And I would attribute at least some of that to the fact that ebooks are not so appealingly priced that it makes it worth it mm -hmm. to... How to be paying for extra technology um, to be able to use ebooks instead of to buy paperbacks. And maybe publishing wants it that way because they make more money off of paperbacks and they would like to make those more appealing than ebooks. I'm not sure. Um, but I think if the, if the price of ebooks from mainstream publishers were lower, we would see this percent change go yeah, up in, in revenue from them. And maybe their total revenue would go down because it would cut into total trade paperback sales. Because if you're paying, I mean, frankly, you know, I think a lot of people that are serious or semi-serious readers, excluding people that are, are sort of, um, you know, format monogamous, like all digital or all print, mm. you know, if you ask us, would we rather pay twelve ninety nine for an ebook or fourteen ninety nine for a print book, I'd rather pay fourteen ninety nine for a print book myself. Um, so to some mm -hmm. degree, it does provide a floor of support for paperback pricing. Uh, the other sort of meta point I was thinking about when I was looking at this is, so the total industry is up 5%, but the, the big shadow thing here is the self-published market. Right. Which isn't accounted for, to my, to my understanding, at all in this, um, which that's a market that didn't exist in any fraction of a percent of what it is now six years ago. So if you're thinking about the whole sort of reading market, it's actually pretty good, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. if you're not going to be the kind of person, and I try not to be, that really separates self-published or independently published, you know, for what, you know, there's a lot of diciness about those particular yeah, words. Yeah, like nomenclature there yeah, is tough. Yeah, but like things that are represented in this study, American Association of Publishers, versus people who sell on Kindle only or Wattpad or, you know, they, they do their own thing. I don't know the size of that market. I'm not sure there are even good stats out there about the size of that market because Amazon controls so much of it and they're notoriously tight-fisted with their numbers. But that whole market exists in addition to the growth we're seeing over the last couple years. This is not just a one-year story in the growth of revenues. In traditional trade publishing is very interesting and very counter to the chicken little books are dying, James Patterson, we better throw money at independent bookstores. Um, now, this doesn't have anything to say about where these book purchases are happening. And that, you know, you can make an argument, and people have made very good full-throated arguments that where these sales are happening can over time erode the health of the industry. But um, that's not the scope of really what we're talking about now. So in the self-published market in combination with the trade market I mean, it's it's a big market. It's big, and it's it seems mm -hmm. okay. It does, and I, you know, we have a headline here farther down the show notes that that we can get to. That's the kids are all right. Yeah, and that just makes a less. It's just a less exciting headline. People don't like to pass that around as much as um, they seem to like to pass around bad news or mm -hmm. oh, let's all worry about a thing. Um, but it does seem that 
at least Chicken Little's time has not come right. yet, yet in publishing. And maybe I'll round um, these up in a post at some point, because I do feel like a lot of the indicator statistics and studies and results we've seen over the last six months or so have sort of a similar vibe of a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, get a, you know Barnes & Noble sort of core comp sales at their bookstores, a little bit better. You know, okay, yep. take away Nook, which has been a train wreck, but you take that off the books. Um, you know, independent bookstores, we're seeing a lot of them open and having better sales. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing, what was it? That was, oh, audiobooks, doing a lot better. Paperbacks, a little bit better. Ebooks, a little bit better. And so like a lot of little bit betters feels a lot like things are kind of normalizing from, or, you know, getting to an uptick. And it's a point I've made before, which is, I know everyone, the, the easy narrative, especially in sort of the tech futurist press, is Amazon's a Goliath that's going to eat everything. Well, they're smart and Bezos is smart and they've got a lot of smart people working for them, no doubt. And they've got advantages that are very difficult for anyone to do anything about. But it's not like everyone else in the whole publishing and book selling and authorship business is just like, well, I guess we're going to get clubbed over the head. I see you guys uh, in some other industry in 20 years. Like they're doing stuff and some of it's working and some of it's not. But a regrouping, I guess, is kind of the word that feels like is about 2014 uh, in the book industry from, from where we sit at least. I think you're right. I think there's some regrouping that's happening um, or that we have done some regrouping in publishing. And a couple of years ago, everything was really uncertain yeah. about uh, what were ebooks going to do. Because they were growing self- crazy like year after year. Like how, if this right. goes on for three more years, 500% of everything yeah, will be ebooks. It was, yeah, it was that early adoption plunge and then be like, oh, if things stay at this rate, what mm-hmm. are we, what's it going to look like? And I don't think the, the gambler's could. fallacy, I do, I'm guilty of this as well. It's like, well, if this just happens for three more years, just think. Well, right, there, right. There, are, there, are, there are limits to the growth. Like you just strap on your skis and hop down the slippery <laughs> yes, slope. Right, yes, know? exactly. Like and uh, we all, I think we all do that. That's a known logical fallacy for a reason. Um, but publishing was very much in the throes of that in 2011 and 2012. Of like, if things keep going at this rate for another three or five years, what's going to happen? Um, and so they, they have not continued mm-hmm. at those initial rates, but there was a a palpable shift in feeling between being at Book Expo America in like That's 20, right. 2011 and 2012 and then what 2013 and what this year felt like. Yeah. There were like this cloud sort of hung over the Javits Center. Like it was cloudier than it typically is inside the Javits Center um, for those first couple of years mm-hmm. when digital was a real question and when self-publishing um, was looking like I think now self-publishing is an established option for writers. It's an established way to do things. There are great communities that are popping up for it, but we're not seeing it look to be such a threat to mainstream publishers. Um, And I don't really have a horse in the race about how mainstream publishers thrive or if they continue to thrive. I just would like to continue having great books to read, but publishing seems less worried about about how that's going to happen. And so it's nice to start to see this um, level out and have some problem solving. Um, I was making notes for our best of the year, Mm. like news year in review show the other day and thinking about how last year it felt like there were just tons of big changes in publishing. And it's felt to me like 2014 was more of a normalizing year. Like we're just sort of continuing to grow stuff and see what experiments are paying off and which things aren't working. Um, But there were no big, huge developments in books this year. And sometimes that's kind of nice. Yeah. Um, Yeah, It's hard to think of one, really. Um, I'm going to use something you said there to to jump off our next story of experiments. Mm. Um, And one that, one that's, uh, it's been around for a couple years, but it looks like it's really taken off at least 
according to this story and sort of my own knowledge of it and attention to it is this, I don't know if people know the Humble Bundle. Yeah. Um, HumbleBundle.com, I believe, is the site. And what they do is they have, I think they last a month or so, an offering of a bundle of, of eBooks that it's pay what you want. Mm-hmm. And they're DRM free, can be a little bit of a hassle, I have to say. I've bought one or two myself to get onto your e-reader of choice. Um, but they're DRM free, and you get a collection of often ten or twelve ebooks or comics or or whatever digital text it is, and uh, you get them. And if sometimes if you pay if you pay more than average, you get like another tier of content, like a couple more titles. Usually, if it's something you're interested, in, it can be a super great deal. Yeah, there was one for audiobooks a couple of yeah. weeks ago that was like eight awesome best-selling audiobooks for I think the average price was like. Eight fifty. Yes, that people were paying. And if you pay which, like five more bucks, you get like four more titles or something. Yeah, like I, that. that unlocking new levels um, thing is a great factor. Humble Bundle started for video games. Yes, as video game bundling, and then they've they had great success there. But they've been working with trade publishers like Simon and Schuster and Open Road and Scholastic and our favorite experimenters at HarperCollins. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, <laughs> HC is in the mix. Right. Um, but and also digital comics publishing, it's they're kind of doing all the different formats at once and reaching a bunch of different kinds of readers. I think the humble bundle is a great way to try out, yeah. a, a, you know, reading something that you wouldn't typically right. read. Like that's it's basically no risk to spend eight dollars to get eight audiobooks yeah. or even fifteen dollars to get eight audiobooks. If you listen to a few of them and they don't ring any of your bells, well, you're only out eight bucks and you're probably going to like at least one of them. And one good audiobook uh, is worth at least $8. $8 well, especially how audiobooks are priced. Anyway, I, I bear, I'm bearing yeah. the lead. Humble Bundle <laughs> released their 2014 stats to date. Um, they did 18 ebook bundles so far in 2014. They probably have one or two remaining in December. That mm-hmm. generated $4.75 million in revenue. And of that revenue, $3 million was generated by comics alone, which is super interesting. That is um, nice. Ten bundles were made up of Charlie Comics. The average bundle, according to Humble Bundle, generated $265,000. The other thing they do is that Humble Bundle allows users to designate a part of their payment to the charity of their choice. So that generated an additional $1.2 million for charities there as well. So this is an example of another way of selling books. These are mostly backlist titles. Sometimes it'll be like a bunch of related like sci-fi or fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ones we did, there was a saga one. Yeah. Right before I think volume three started, you could get volume one and two in saga and like volume one, two and five of the walking dead for like, I think I bought it for like 11 bucks. I even had some of the saga stuff. I'm just buying this. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it's a way of people mining backlist, also generating interest for a continuing series uh, like Saga for, or Walking Dead that are still ongoing series of comic books. Um, b- backlists of popular authors who have a new book out or a recently new book out. Um, before mm-hmm. Ocean, the End of the Lane came out, um, Neil Gaiman had a title in one of the HarperCollins Humble Bundles, I think had American Gods and Stardust. I can't remember exactly, but you get the point that I'm trying to make here. So this is a way publishers and distributors are thinking like, how we've got all this stuff and how can we present it to people in a way that's new and different and frankly, outside of the Amazon uh, clutches. Right. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Um, the current books bundle is for Dynamite Comics, which is a, a great comics publisher and has $605 worth of comics mm. that are available. You get um, seven, you get like 20, 21 issues of comics for 
paying whatever you want. If you pay more than the average of $8.80, you unlock another like 25 Mm. titles. And then if you pay $15 or more, you unlock another five titles. So you can pay, as long as you pay a minimum of $15, you're unlocking $605 worth of comics to read digitally. And there are all sorts of things here like i'm uh, personally slower to try a new comic than i am to jump into like a a novel by an Mm -hmm. author that i've never read before because comics are the thing that i'm just sort of starting to get into so this is a great low risk way to try a bunch of new things all in one go and if you come out of it having found just a few that you really like um that's you know that's totally worth it i think it's a great way to experiment with your reading life and and a cool business model to see i'm glad to see it worked yeah. you know like a, a, there was a lot of what's going to happen if you let people pay whatever they want mm-hmm. um and well it appears that what's happened at least in the way that humble bundle has done it is it, it, that things can survive this way or at least their business can survive well i mean i guess we don't they didn't tell us anything about margin or true, growth true. over 2013 or like what are the what are the publishers getting as a return you know and again there's a lot of questions but it's it's a big interesting distribution platform you know uh, model and i think in my guess is that number is tr- going to triple in 2015, if not more. That humble mm-hmm. bundle number. I, we we should make a prediction show. Some, yeah, we're going to. We'll, I thought maybe, we were. Maybe we'll do we're going to do okay. That. No, but like an actual, we can come back and check later. Ah. Yeah. So anyway, I'll I'll, I'll go down for a 300 uh, or three X on humble bundles revenue for 2015. All right. All right. Okay. All right. All right. We better. She's oh, a wheeze. You want to hear weird news? Yeah. Can let's do, let's weird do weird news. news. Let's do weird news. <laughs> this is. One of the weirder stories that I've heard, Um, a writer named Graham Reynolds was notified by Amazon that his novel called High More 2, Moonstruck, which is a werewolf novel, um, he published it on Amazon. It went up in March. And after he paid a thousand, more than a thousand pounds, this is from The Guardian, uh, so they're talking pounds, for professional editing. It's had a hundred almost entirely positive reviews on Amazon. On December 12th, just last week, he got an email from Amazon notifying him that because a reader had complained about the fact, quote, about the fact that some of the words in the book were hyphenated, Amazon was, quote, suppressing the book because the hyphens impact the readability. Man, that's weird. They ran an automated spell check against the manuscript and found over 100 words in a 90,000 word novel. I, I, this is contained I, I feel a like hyphen. I'm eating crazy sandwiches. Like, what is this story? <laughs> it's so, it's so weird. One like, reader, one reader apparently, can get pulled. Yeah, one reader complained that the hyphens affected the 100 hyphens in a 90,000 word novel affected the readability of the book. And so Amazon took that complaint seriously and basically gave this author a revise and resubmit. Once you've corrected the hyphenated words, please republish your book and make it available for sale again. I mean, like, of all the of all the of all the trash and garbage, <laughs> and I'm I'm not even talking about. I mean, and I mean literally like these like automatically generated eBooks that are you know mm-hmm. been put in so that Kindle Unlimited algorithms, you read them and they get a percentage and, you know, people stealing other people's titles, like Saladin Ahmed, I think, was tweeting about this other day that someone was taking his entire text and putting them under that person's name and putting them on Kindle. Of all the crap that goes on. Yeah, Andrew Schaefer has been tweeting through the holiday season, especially about 
self-published books on Amazon that are put up that aren't even real self-published books that are just people putting Stephen King like as the author name of some random thing they publish because it games the algorithm. What a weird um, and story. This, is, so this is the thing that Amazon weird. has decided to care about. Like we had that story last year where a woman, it was a mistake with Stephen King. Like her, yes. either her title that was, was this really year, I similar. Think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, either her title was really similar to a Stephen King title or something about her name. I don't remember what the details were, but it's that the same she, title. Yeah. Same title. Yeah. She had gotten like, you know, thousands of dollars in royalty <laughs> checks from people who had bought her book intending she assumes to have bought Stephen King's book and she was doing you know making a funny blog out of how she was spending her Stephen King money but like that is a real thing that happens and it's a thing that people do intentionally to to try to game the system and make money off of people who are looking for an actual Stephen King book or uh, Andrew Schaefer had found examples of books that were listed on Amazon that were like combinations of popular yeah, middle gosh. authors names like that's a that is fraud and so that's maybe a thing to care about more <laughs> and than maybe the use plagiarism of and maybe copyright violations like all <laughs> right. wrapped up into a nice um fetid stew <laughs> of like, this is <laughs> this is the thing and for all I know Amazon is also working on those other problems and we haven't but we haven't heard anything yeah. about it what we have heard is that they're concerned about 100 hyphens in a 90,000 word novel and i just like it's so i it's so odd that there's got to be more to this than than meets the eye um i don't even know what to say about it i mean i would hope there has to be more than this but it's too many hyphens it it just first of all that someone would notice a hundred hyphenated words in a ninety thousand word book like I, i i would say that that's probably not is that even a standard deviation away from the I, amount of hyphenated words that appear in most novels of equivalent length? No idea. Like, I, I just oh, have no. no idea what the standard number of okay, hyphens so that's would, like 90, words, would be. Ninety thousand words, you said. Ninety thousand words is a pretty standard length for a novel. So let's call that's it. That's one hyphenated word every nine hundred words. So one every three pages, essentially. Right, that's what right. hyphen. How do you even Who notice even that? Notices? How would you even notice? And then you would get to the trouble to email the kin. I mean, weird. So it's a rule of the internet that if a thing can be noticed and complained about about it, someone sure, will notice it yeah. and complain about it. And so this seems like, I think this but is that, a I guess I'm, is that even a thing to notice? That, but like, if you're the person It's like saying there the, are words in this book. <laughs> well, someone noticed it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I guess <laughs> like, what I'm saying is many, it even different than most books? Because if it's not, then it's not, not. even like, a thing to notice. Maybe this person has written letters to Amazon about every book that they've they read. They just that hate hyphens. Hyphens. Uh, who knows? But that but the, this is even a story is just the weirdest thing. Very strange. Very to me. strange. And it does highlight. Amazon even responded to it. Like, when you're in a customer service situation or or even like in jobs that we have where you have readers or customers, people that are interacting with content either that you produce or that you make available to them, you're going to get all kinds of feedback. Mm-hmm. And part of the job is knowing which feedback to not pay yes. any attention to. And it seems like this is just a misplacement of a lot of time and attention yeah. that could have been put somewhere else. It does seem awfully strange. I mean, it's so weird. I, I don't even know what to say. I guess it does highlight negatively, sort of as we're saying, the QC problem Amazon has with the dregs of the Kindle store. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm, I'm not even talking about we, – we've, we've talked about stories like dinosaur erotica and stuff like that. I'm not even talking about that stuff. 
Uh, I'm talking about, you know, the plagiarism, the fraud, the gaming, the algorithmically generated, you know, garbage mm -hmm. that, that inherits the seller of the Kindle store. And that someone gets randomly cracked on for something, a thing that's not even a thing, just is all the more befuddling of what they care about and what they're paying attention to and, and what they don't. So, all right, let's do our next sponsor. And then we'll talk about, we, we, we don't have much new books this year, but we got another spot for you at the end, another thing. So tryaudiobooks.com is back. Uh, we've been talking about audiobooks a lot. Um, a lot of people listen to podcasts and listen to audiobooks. And we've been constantly thinking and telling people ways that you can make audiobooks a part of your life. But if you go to tryaudiobooks.com, what you can do is they set it up where you can choose, you know, what activity you're doing that you'd like to pair with some audiobooks. So, for example, they've got, if you're into fitness, if you're crafting, you're traveling with a family, traveling for business, if you're into sort of mm -hmm. tech stuff, if you're playing video games or you're doing other things like that, if you're gardening or cooking, you can choose a uh uh, category, and they'll suggest some books for you. So right now, I'm just looking, if you're a gardener or a cook, they're suggesting Jim Caffigan's um, Food, right? Which is a, mm -hmm. you know, his sort of a humor, humorous memoir of his life and few, uh, food. Uh, let's see, what if they do if they go to Business Traveler? Not surprisingly, they're, they're so selecting some um, business books, Stress Test by Timothy Geithner, things of um, uh, other things like that, like Business Adventures, which is the book that, uh, was it Bill Gates recently said? Who was it said is the best business book he's ever read? I think oh, it was Bill Gates said, you know, it's this business book from 1974 that was only available in audiobook and digital when he mentioned it. So it is his huge spike. So go to tryaudiobooks.com. You can listen to your favorite author, newest bestseller, give your routine a fresh new perspective right there. Someone's suggesting other ways. Someone did a post for us. I can't remember who wrote, who wrote the post about how to do more reading over the holidays. Do you remember? Uh, I think Christina Pino. Christina Pino, right. And she mentioned in there, in your, you know, morning ritual, Put on audiobook on the stereo, which oh. I had never really thought about, right? Mm -mm. You know, you're, you're, you're brushing your teeth. You're, I don't have hair to do, but had I hair to, to work on and make attractive, um, you know, an audiobook would be a really good way to do about that. If you're getting dressed, put on makeup, you know, whitening your teeth, using your Q-tips, you know, getting all your nooks and crannies cleaned out and um, aesthetically <laughs> modified as best as you can. Uh, that's another way you could do it. I, I was thinking about that in terms of uh, cleaning the house, getting ready to have people over, holiday kind of time there as well. Uh, so go to tryaudiobooks.com and get started and find some good picks for audiobooks. Thanks so much to Random House Audiobooks for sponsoring the Book Riot Podcast. Okay. Okay. So our, we don't have new books, so we were spitballing before the show. What can we do right here? Should we not do books at all? When we thought, well, what if we just went over some what we thought sort of the it books of 2014 were? Now, here, here are your disclaimers and caveats. These are not our favorite books. These are not even necessarily the best books. These are not even necessarily the books you're going to see on a lot of best of lists. Though you might, and they could fall into those categories. But this is about buzz and, I guess, sustained attention. Is that what? Is that kind of what mm -hmm. I mean? Was that what we mean? <laughs> How else would you define yeah. it? Book? Would you add to that? And I think buzz, both advertising generated yeah. and reader generated, sustained attention in the run up to the publication, and then afterwards. Like there are often we have it books that are we're told are it books and then they yeah. come out and nothing happens to those books and it's clear that that's just oh, failed or, it books that's a good yeah that's, that's a good just one. publisher generated buzz so i think those that's not what i'm thinking about yeah, here yeah, i'm yeah. thinking about stuff that there was buzz about in the run-up to publication but that also once the book was available to readers readers buzzed about it and agreed that it was yeah. a book to talk about 
Um, let's see. Often those are books that have big advertising campaigns often around they are. them. Some of them don't. Well, let's right? start here because I think one okay. of them that didn't, uh, and we know this because we approached them about advertising on the site and they said, well, we don't have a budget for it yet. Or was The Martian mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in February? Is that when that came out? Yeah, that came out in February. And that's one that, you know, we, I don't remember who, was it Liberty that read it first? Probably. I think it was Liberty. Yeah. Uh, Liberty Hardy, who is a friend of the site and writes for us, a bookseller at uh, River Run Bookstore up in uh, good old New Hampshire, read it, loved it, passed it around, um, you know, uh, got buzz in our writer ranks before it came out. And then you read it and some other people read it and I finally got around to it. Even Clint, our good friend <laughs> Clint, who we work with read it. And that's, you know, if Clint read it, and I've recommended to people and they've all loved it. Like for me, that's the one that in my life, I heard buzz about, read, and then sort of perpetuated the buzz mm-hmm. um, going forward. So The Martian, would you say that's one of like the five or six sort of it books of the year? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it was for sure. And for that reason that, um, that was a word of mouth success. And that then Random House kind of came along behind it and put some money into advertising the book after readers were already talking about it. It just came out in paperback Mm -hmm. last month. um, And there has been noticeable marketing around the paperback. Also, I think it was smart that they didn't wait a full year to put that in paperback and they got it out in paperback for the holiday season. It's on sale for $3 right now on Amazon for as an ebook. Just, just if you're interested. Go check it, it will out. keep you up at night. Yes, it so will. So start it in the morning. Recommend my brother, <laughs> my friend Tim, and like you know, my my brother Wes texted me. He's like, I'm in a reading mm-hmm. slump. Give me something. I'll just like, I just I'll just rip through. I was like, bang, The Martian done. He's like, and he texted back. He's like, I finished that in two days. Yep. Um. So that's one. All right. What do you got? What did you have something? I've you're got thinking of? yeah. I've got a I've got a couple. Okay. Um. Everything I never told you by Celeste Ng. Yeah. Uh, a latecomer. That's what we call sprinting to the post in horse mm-hmm. racing. Because I am a great horseman. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> what you're laughing? I'm just picturing your what six foot four self in a jockey outfit. Yeah, it's I ride. Weird, I ride. Jeff. I ride it's small. Strange. I ride small. Um, <laughs> Wasn't ready for that. Uh, this everything I ever told you, Celeste Ang, Amazon's best book of 2014. Amanda Nelson from Book Riot, her, her best, best book, book of 2014. Of the year. A lot of that's, people really yeah, love that book. Super cool person one, as well. Yeah, I kind of slept on that one. I think Amanda and I talked about it a few weeks ago when she was on the show that like that ran through the ranks of Book Riot contributors as well. And I saw it run through the ranks of readers um, of Book Riot and on Twitter and you know all the places that I talked to people about books. Lots of people were talking about that. And um, Rachel Fershleiser from Tumblr was buzzing about it from the very beginning, but it's just continued to pick up steam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like we, we haven't seen peak Celeste Ng yet. No. I think that book this is just going to continue novel, I think. going. I think this was uh, second. I thought novel. it was a debut. Oh, maybe it was. I, I I'm don't not remember. sure. I think when that, when it comes out in paperback, it's going to yeah. go even bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also one that you can recommend, and I have been to just about anyone. Mm. Uh, will find something to relate to in the story, but also it's just a page-turning great book. Um, I read it in one go. Like I started it on a Saturday morning and finished it that evening, and just achieved that by ignoring my husband <laughs> and all of my responsibilities <laughs> for a day, but totally worth it. Um, I think that's one of the it books of the year. I'm going, I, uh, Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist. That's on my list too. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, Roxanne has a, uh, 
you know, she's not a person with a million Twitter followers, but super loyal and engaged Twitter followers. She's written a lot online. Um, mm-hmm. And on some of the pieces, Bad, Bad Femmes is an essay collection about, I guess, sort of the modern spectrum of gender issues in pop culture and otherwise. Is that fair? I, I find it hard to sort of get yeah, my hands around it. Well, the notion is that it's impossible for anyone to be a perfect or even a quote unquote good feminist mm. and that we'll make ourselves crazy if it's, if, oh, if we're if, just if we were, micro-policing everyone. Yeah. Feminism. Or if we even are micro-policing ourselves right. about like, am I being a good enough feminist? What if I liked, like, what if I liked blurred lines? Right. Does that make me a bad feminist? And Roxanne's, um, idea, which I really loved, was we can all just embrace being bad feminists instead. Mm. Um, That you work in whatever ways you can for the feminist cause, whatever you define that to be, um, if feminism is a thing that you care about, but that we're, we all contain multitudes. I think she even says like a feminist can contain multitudes as a nice, you know, tip of the hat to Uncle Walt. Um, but that you can you can like complicated problematic pop culture mm-hmm. and be a feminist um you can do the laundry in your house and be a woman and be a feminist you know that we all have different uh different ways of playing out our feminism and different ways of living it and the book is about embracing what works for you and how you feel that you're being the best feminist and so there are personal essays and there are um, reviews of movies and music and pieces of pop culture um uh, Roxanne Gay is one of I think the best embodiments of how to be a public intellectual mm. who also embraces the fact that she loves pop culture and you can you can enjoy lowbrow things and have a highbrow brain. <laughs> is, yeah, is a lot a of close reading. <laughs> I guess sort of accessible close readings of popular culture yeah, she, through her own particular lens. Mm-hmm, right. She and there's a lot of Roxanne in the not in the essays as well. A lot of stuff about her personal experiences or her personal quirks or neuroses about a thing. And she's really open about that, which I think, you know, makes her writing so relatable that it, it doesn't feel like you're reading criticism from someone in an ivory tower. This is a real person uh, who has real person problems and thoughts and experiences and things that she enjoys and hobbies and, you know, all of that. Um, it feels very full-bodied in the way that she writes about uh, about all the pieces of culture. But, there, like, there's a great review of The Help. Mm. Um, there's a great discussion of t- her perspective on Tyler Perry movies and his success and what he stands for in the Black community and in Black entertainment. Just all kinds of stuff. It's, it, it's a really diverse collection of uh, essays on all kinds of topics. And they, they did a great job marketing this book. Like there was a, a huge push behind it, but also it was just popping up everywhere. Like people were, I, my Instagram feed for weeks was just filled with people that I was like, Oh, I didn't even know you read books. And they were, you know, selfieing themselves with bad feminist. It was, I think undeniably one of the it books of the okay, year. Okay, So uh, I led off with the Martian. You countered with everything I never told you. Then I did Bad Feminist, so you're up again. Okay, yeah, Bad Feminist was on my list. The Empathy Exams yeah. by Leslie Jameson. Two essay collections. Um, that one notably debuted at number 11 on the New York Times paperback bestseller list. This is one on my 2015 I Want to Get to It list. I haven't actually oh, read anything so but oh, so one good. or two essays that were published online. Um, yeah, so you have to, you know, that's one that's it's about 
being an empathetic person and the trials and tribulations and limitations and exaltations uh, of trying to be an empathetic person. And it's from Grey Wolf, which is yeah. a small up, nonprofit up there in the, publisher. In, uh, the great uh, white north of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, my pick. In a couple ways. Let's do two, we can do a couple more. Each. I, right. I think the Southern Reach trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. Oh, mm-hmm. It hasn't, tell me if I'm wrong, it hasn't quite broken out like The Martian has. But among sort of the sci-fi fantasy community, it was a huge deal this year. And I think maybe as it sort of exists, um, it's going to be more and more popular, especially if a movie that is a movie series gets made out of it, which there's some mm-hmm. talk about happening. It's very. I've only read the first one. All three books came out from FSG in these really beautiful paperbacks this year. I don't know that much about the publication history. It must have been he surely didn't write them all at once and publish them all. There must be some backstory that I don't understand about what original format and publishing um, process there was there. But at any rate, all three books came out from FSG this year, which you know they're interestingly more of a literary publication uh, imprint than anything. And Annihilation, right. I guess I would say is. Adult dystopia? I don't know. The the setup is, I'm going to just sound crazy talking about it, but some future America where there's this Area X left in Florida that no one's really sure what's happening, but there's nothing else to say about it, but there's a lot of stuff going on there. A lot of weird wildlife and noises and sort of ecological effects, and a team gets sent in to figure out what's happening. And I think that's all I want to say. I don't want to say any more than that about yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's a lot weirder. I've only also only read the first yeah, it's, one. It's, it's weird. a lot it's very weirder weird. than The Martian, which... Yeah, um, yeah, that's fair. It, you didn't really have to be a sci-fi or fantasy or space travel reader to be able to relate to The Martian Yeah, The Martian is it. Apollo not, 13 on Mars. Easy pitch, yeah, there's everyone really, understands. Yeah. Right. There's not a lot of science involved. Mm-hmm. It's just a really great page-turning story. Um, it, the Area X books are a lot weirder. So I think there's a different yeah. kind of reader who can hang with that. I don't know if I would call it dystopia, but I also don't know what I yeah. would call it. And we once had a three-hour <laughs> argument about how to define speculative fiction. So I don't want to get into that on the air. Um, but th- for sure, a book that a lot of people talked about or a series that a lot of people talked about this year. I thought it was so interesting that they put out all three yep. of them in relatively close succession and that seemed like to work March, well. March, June, and, and September or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and now there's a cool um, omnibus edition oh, of them, a boxed get, set that's really that. pretty. That's a, also a great Christmas gift. Mm. Or if you're looking for a last minute gifts for people, that would be a good one for someone who's in who can hang with sort of a, a weird and unsettling story. Like you you go quite a ways into the first book before you really understand where you are and and what's happening. But I think that's a fun reading experience. I would like to see more publishers do that Mm. with series. Like imagine if the Mad Adam books, like if Margaret Atwood took the time to write all three of those, but then they published them closer together than two or three years apart. This is even a tier down, but one bunch of people are talking about Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. Those are all, Mm -hmm. that's a trilogy that they're all either out simultaneously or in close proximity to each other. All right, so that was my pick. You want to do one more? We Were Liars by E. Lockhart. Ah, the, the, the lone Y.E. title we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Big, 
big, big buzz um, around that one for months. Like, I think it came out this spring of 2014, and I started getting it in the mail in the summer of 2013, mm-hmm. um, which is usually a good signal, at least about how big a publisher wants a book to be, <laughs> right. um, how far in advance are they sending copies of it to reviewers. And at that time that my galley came, it came with like a poster that had a bunch of blurb quotes from other big YA authors. And so the publisher had been working on making the book a hit for a while, has a big twist at the end. Um, that's a, you know, a big surprise that, uh, the whole campaign around the book was like, don't talk about it. Like you Mm -hmm. can't talk about the ending because (laughs) the ending is the ending. Um, and, and I don't know that it lived up, um, in sales numbers. In sales numbers and in reader response to that mm. buzz, but it was certainly, it was certainly a big deal. Yeah, I got I got a couple more. I just want to mention um, Station Eleven, Emily yep. Mandel. That was on my list um, too. Let's see what else did I have? Uh, Boy Snowbird, Helen Oyeyemi. Mm-hmm. A little bit hampered, I think, coming out in February. Literary fiction title. That's kind of a no man's land for literary fiction in February. Um, let's see. I, I think the failed it books I thought was interesting to mention just real quickly. I wouldn't call this one a failure, but I think they thought it was going to be like this year's Goldfinch. Um, but it, I think people who read it mostly liked it. But The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell, there was, mm. a, there was a big push. You know, we saw at BEA, there was a million people there wanting to get the, the galley. And they had a bunch of advertising there. He made all the rounds he possibly could. I haven't read it yet. I will eventually. Um, but I don't think it became, you know, it didn't make, it didn't make many sort of award shortlists or anything like that that I've seen at least. Um, so again, I wouldn't call that a failure, but it wasn't, you know, the big deal that maybe they thought it might be kind of in the same category, not that kind of girl by Lena Dunham. Mm-hmm. You know, Giant, we know, is like a $3 million advance. I think it sold well, but I don't, it also didn't become sort of a giant cultural phenomenon and it actually was better known for some of the controversies in the text itself. The other one I have on here, and again, I don't know any of the sales numbers, but I also know that there was a lot of money put into it. Endgame by James Frey, whatever ah. you want to call this YA thing that's like supposed to be a movie franchise and like some crazy advanced number. And there was a sort of a publicity $500,000 scavenger hunt thing that went into the launch. And again, most of you are probably hearing about it for the first time right now, which tells you something yep. uh, right there. Any addendums, quick hits you want to add to the fail? Ooh, it and, uh, and I also think Whiskey legit- Tango... Yeah, Whiskey oh. Tango Foxtrot by David Schaefer was one that I heard a lot about in the run-up yeah. that I received a bunch of galleys yeah. of. I yeah. read it. Um, that I think it was. I think it was Dwight Garner declared it the book of summer. Yes, um, one of the big reviewers declared it the book of summer. Uh, but I, I, I didn't think it lived up. Um, I don't think the buzz has followed it um, to live up to that the hype pre-publication. One other one that this sort of a sleeper hit, not a sleeper so much as I keep hearing about it and it's appearing routinely at the top of both the regular bestseller list and the children's bestseller list is the book with no pictures by BJ Novak. I mm. guess it's selling a jillion copies and I have one of them in my house right here for our kids for Christmas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a book with no pictures, but it's a performative book. So you have to read it out loud and make funny noises. And that book apparently has been selling like hotcakes. I've heard from a couple of people who um, deal in children's book that sold a whole bunch of copies there as well. So that's, that's another one there. That was fun. I like that little set. I'm sure there are things we mm-hmm. forgot about. Um, if you've got a pick for something we missed for it books, of 2014, please let us know podcast at bookwriter.com. That's going to be our show. As always, you can find show notes at podcast, excuse me, 
bookriot.com slash podcast is where you can find show notes us. You can always find us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Bookriot.com. I do critical linking there every weekday. Rebecca's there doing other stuff. We're always on Twitter. You can find us there at Book Riot as well. Email us. I told you the email address. I feel like 10 times today, so I'm not going to do that. Would I forget anything else? I always get to the end of this and think I've forgotten. If you so, want to rate or review yeah, the show on iTunes, that helps other people to find it. And uh, next week, we're going to do our big 24 tiered near review. So if you've got anything you want to make sure you hear us return to, we've got some good stuff there coming up. So as always, thanks so much for listening. And uh, take it I guess it'll be Christmas before we everyone hears us again, right? Yeah, so it will. I hope if you're celebrating Hanukkah, Christmas, another holiday, um, have a good one. <laughs>